0: I always look forward to the music set. Ronnie has my notes, but I don't have his, so I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what kind of music we're going to have on Sunday morning, but I always know it's going to be something that's going to bless my heart. And, you know, um, some of the songs we sang today are songs that we would sing at children's camp and youth camp. And, you know, I I remember some of those special moments when uh, groups like Mercy Me led us through that song. Yeah, they were our camp band one year, two years, and and Chris Tomlin was was also one of our lead worship leaders at at, at camp, and so, um, gosh, man, through the years, and uh, it's just been been a blessing. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, some of you came in a little bit wet this morning. Uh, some didn't come because of the wet weather, but we're here and we're going to worship the Lord. I trust He's here. Amen. We're going to have a good time. Now, if I were to say to you, I want you to name your hometown, instantly when I said that, the name of your hometown came to your mind, right? Now, some of you uh, who are military kids, your, 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 your parents have moved so many times that you've never been anywhere long enough to call it your hometown. But for a great many of us, we, we think of the name of our hometown it's on the tip of our tongue. It's really easy to find. So I want us to start off doing something a little crazy. Can we do that? Can I do that with you all? Um, uh, on the count of three, I want everybody to say the name of their hometown. Okay? One, two, three. <laughs> Panama City. <laughs> That's was crazy, wasn't it? Now, now here's, here's the beautiful thing. God heard every bit of that at the same time and deciphered it. He can do that. That's the kind of God we have. I was born in Key West, Florida. I'm as southern as southern can get. If you go any further, you're in Cuba. <laughs> I was born in Key West. My dad was on a submarine and he was stationed out of Key West. Uh, but when my dad got out of the Navy, he went back to Panama City where he had met my mom and there is where I was raised. I I was less than a year old when we moved back to Panama City. So officially it became my hometown. We actually lived in a suburb of Panama City, a little town called Smith or excuse me, Springfield, I want to say Smithfield. Springfield, uh, it's close. Springfield for uh, until I was about 6 years old and then we moved to another little town out in the country called Callaway. Calloway. Um, we lived about a mile from the grammar school that I attended, and you guessed it, it was named Calloway yeah, Elementary School. And so um, back in the day, as my granddaughter would say, Caroline, um, I walked to school or I rode my bike to school. Uh, we weren't so far that I couldn't do that. And every day when I would go to school, we would go by this little store that was on the corner of Highway 22 and Star Avenue. And um, uh, back then, Star Avenue was, was still a dirt road. And so whenever I would ride my bicycle to school, I would have to deal with the sand. Because a lot of times, uh, uh, Star Avenue would be kind of sandy. So there were times that I would have to push my bike through the sand, couldn't ride it in, in the sand, and... So I'd either push it or you know, ride it, getting to school. The little store that I mentioned a minute ago was Lee, Lee's Bait and Tackle. Lee's Bait and Tackle. Mr. and Miss Lee were from Louisiana. He retired from Ideal Bakery, and they moved to, to Callaway, and they bought this little store. Uh, they were the ones that gave me my very first job. And, and when they hired me, they uh, agreed to pay me 25 cents an hour. Now, 25 cents an hour for an eight-year-old is big money. I mean, I could buy an R.C. Cole and a Moon Pie and still have some change. As best my memory serves me, I, I, I don't think they were allowed to work me, but somewhere between 20 and 25 hours a week because of child labor laws, you know, they had to keep that in check. And so they hired several of us hometown boys to work for them there in the store. My job was pumping gas. I remember pumping gas for like 18 cents a gallon. Yeah. Wow, inflation. (laughs) Uh, I I had to go into the ice house. We had an ice house and and get ice out for customers. And Back then, they would deliver ice to us uh, several times a week, 300-pound blocks. And so they taught us how to take an ice pick and chip it up into 50-pound blocks, 25-pound blocks, and and 12-and-a-half-pound blocks. We also had to chip up our own ice for bagged ice. And we had an old ice chipper that dumped the chipped ice into a number two wash tub. And then we would scoop it out and put it in a bag and put a zip tie around it, 25-pound bags of ice. Um, I got locked in that ice house one time. Uh, They took the plunger out and shut the door and locked me in for about an hour and Miss Lee found me, and they're about to freeze to death in a pair of tennis shoes and, and a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> but it was just the things we did when we worked there. Um, we counted bait. Um, I have counted thousands and thousands and thousands of earthworms. Uh, yeah, we would, we would do that every, every week and uh, counted wigglers. We sold uh, live minnows in the summer and live shrimp in the winter. We also sold crickets and catawba worms. Anybody know what a catawba worm is? Yeah, I see a few of you that know what you're doing. <laughs> um, I won't tell you how my grandmother used to use them, but anyway. Um, inside the store, we, we were responsible for keeping the floor clean, so we swept the floor and uh, we, we took the garbage out made sure that was done. We, we kept the drink box full. It was one of those old drink boxes where you would slide your drink over, lift the lid, slide it over, put your money in, take your drink out. And uh, So I had to do that. We also uh, would, would cut the grass and, and uh, make sure that supplies were up on the shelf, make sure that all the, the fishing lure cards were up on the shelf and hanging where they were supposed to be. Miss um, Lee was a godly Christian woman. But Mr. Lee was as as lost as a goose in a (laughs) hailstorm. he 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 didn't know the Lord. He was a good man. He was a a faithful husband, but he was a bad alcoholic. And uh, he would go three times a week to buy bait, and sometimes he would drive 150 miles to find bait at the different baiters that would grub for the earthworms. And uh, he would always stop by the liquor store on the way back, and... And when he would, we would unload the, the bait in 500 worms to a can and, uh, and we put that in the bait house and then we noticed that he would take a bottle of whiskey out of his back pocket and he would usually hide it up in the shell, you know, up in the rafters around in the different bait houses. And so, so part of our job, another job that we boys had was to, to watch him, strategically watch where he put that whiskey. He drank vodka so it was clear. Some of you know that, don't you? Vodka's clear. And so he would, he would hide it up in, in different places, and we would know where it was at. And when he wasn't looking, we would pour about half the bottle out and put the same amount of water back in. And, and there were literally times that we had him almost drinking water, you know, pure water. And he would figure it out, and he'd get mad at us, and he would try to chase us. And you know, he'd snatch his belt off like he was going to whip us, but he never did. Um, praise God, Mr. Lee eventually uh, came to know the Lord through his wife, and uh, uh, he quit drinking. And I, I just have a lot of fond memories. I could stand and talk for days about the things that we did at that little bait store, precious memories. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that God gave me that job. You see, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a good home, but not a Christian home. So, so Miss Lee was not only a, a godly boss to me, um, she was my first godly teacher. And so every day at 9 o'clock, she would get up, whatever she was doing, she'd stop and she'd go lock the front door of the store. And and whatever boys were working that day and whatever we were doing, we would stop and we would have to join her in that little parlor there between uh, the store and... and uh, Uh, Where they they lived. They lived in a a little apartment that was a part of the store. And she would come in with her Bible. And she would sit down and she would read scripture to us. Every day. Customers knew it. Customers would wait. Because they knew that's what she was doing. She would read scripture and then she would pray over us. Us boys. Um, There's no doubt in my mind that her prayers played a major part in my salvation. Mine and Steve Brayers and Corky King's and, you know, eventually her own husband, Mr. Lee. So I I thank God for the Lees and what they did in giving me my first job and influencing my life. Since then, I've done a whole lot of things. I've had a lot of jobs in my life. My dad used to say, son, never be afraid to learn a new job because you never know what you're going to have to do to feed your family. Somewhere in the future. That made a lot of sense. And so uh, I wasn't afraid to learn to do work, but afraid of work. My dad taught me to work. He, he, he said, son, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, so I, I remember cutting grass, earning money, cutting grass. I, I sold the, the old grit paper. Y'all remember that? The grit paper. It was it an was information paper. Uh, five cents a copy. You got to keep two cents, but you had to send three cents back, and so you had you had to work a lot. You had to sell a lot of papers to make money. I didn't do that very long, by the way. <laughs> it just it wasn't um, as you know, it just didn't make money for me. I, I remember working in a cabinet shop, learning how to make cabinets. Did that a couple of summers. I was a deckhand on a fishing party boat for a couple of summers. Um, I worked in a paint and body shop, learning how to put bondo on and grind and Take cars off and prime them and things like that, get them ready to paint. Um, I worked at a sporting goods store. Uh, I've sold uh, archery equipment, and, and uh, I taught diving for a while, scuba diving. Um, I worked at a welding shop, uh, selling welding supplies, and eventually had an opportunity to become a welder. and I did that for, for 12 years uh, before coming into ministry. Going through Bible college, um, I worked on a 10,000-acre beef master ranch. We had 1,600 head of cattle, and so I cut a lot of hay. I fed a lot of cows. I poked a lot of cows and tagged them and dehorned them and did a lot of things like that. Um, I also did a lot of carpentry going through school. Uh, I trimmed horses' feet. Um, you know, you do a lot of things when you're hungry. You, you, you'll do whatever is available to you. And so it's not a bad thing. Uh, I did a lot of things, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that God gave me the opportunity to do that because one of the things I've said many times, there's a lot of things when we were going through college and seminary that they didn't tell you because if they did, you would have quit and went home. Um, you, you, you don't have any idea what you're going to do when you get in ministry. I remember the day that I went forward in our home church and, and the day that I surrendered my life to follow God's call in ministry to be a pastor. Uh, Keith Fordham was a visiting evangelist that week, and he was preaching a revival in our, in our home church. And I remember being there that day. Um, in fact, every day, every service, I was there at every one of the services, and every one, it was like there was nobody else in that building that week. Everything he said... It was like he was speaking specifically to me. Uh, that was God working in my life. It wasn't Keith Fordham. It was God. And, and, and I realized that God was trying to do something in me, and he wanted to do something with me. And I don't mind telling you, I was scared, slapped to death. Um, I was very comfortable being a welder, doing what I did. But for God to call me out of that environment and put me in, one that I knew nothing about, what was a very scary thing. Um, I, I felt compelled, compelled to leave everything. My family, my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sister, my friends, people I'd grown up with, people I knew, the dreams I had. The land Joyce and I had, our home, everything—I was compelled to go and follow God wherever God would lead me to be, and that we did. When I made that commitment to the Lord, that—that um, that is when He gave me a, a new task, a, a new job, so to speak. And ministry is not a job to me; it, it's a calling. It's a calling. There's a very difference. If it's a job, you won't last very long. It, it, If you don't know why God called you into ministry, you won't be there very long. I promise you. Um, I remember going home and thinking I need to go talk to my dad and tell him what I've just done. Um, And I remember going down and telling dad that I'd surrendered to follow God into ministry. And uh, I, I remember exactly what dad said to me. He said, I can live with you being a preacher. But you make sure that my grandkids are fed and you make sure that there are shoes on their feet. You see, my dad had seen the bad side of ministry from a distance, from a lost person's perspective, but he still saw it. Later on, my dad said to me, you know, I, I can live with you being in ministry, but if you take up golf, I'm going to disown you. <laughs> Part of that was because my dad just couldn't play golf very well and it was a frustrating sport for him. But the other part was my dad wanted to make sure that I concentrated and, and continued to work. He didn't understand ministry. Um, he didn't want me to get lazy. Yeah. Uh, dad believed in hard work. Uh, he believed in doing a good job, doing, give, doing the best you could possibly do. Um, he taught me to work. Not, not by what he said, but, but what he did. The day that I surrendered uh, to follow God into ministry, I had a man who was a member of our home church. He walked up to me, and he took me by the hand. He took my hand, and he turned it over, and he looked at my hand, and he said, son, one day that's going to be as soft as a baby's behind, and that's all he said, and he walked away, and and so I, I'm, I'm trying to put two and two together and figure out what he said to me, and. I, I think he was implying that my working days were over. <laughs> you know, in other words, he's thinking that pastors don't work. You, you work one hour a week, right? <laughs> um, I, I think he also had the mindset that there are some people that can't do anything else, so they go into ministry. Yeah. A little while later, that, that same man came up to me while I was talking to my pastor, who was my friend. And he kind of interrupted our conversation by, by saying in front of my pastor. He said, son, and by the way, he, he, didn't, he didn't like my pastor. And so there, he, his, what he was about to say was intentional. And he didn't care who it offended. But he said to me, son, you go off and get your theological degree and then you come back and you can be our pastor. I was hurt. Um, I literally wanted to go off and crawl in a hole somewhere because I was embarrassed by what he said even though I didn't have anything to do with what he said. Dr. Johnson, we called him Dr. J. Dr. J was was a godly pastor. Um, I, I learned more from him than anybody else I've ever learned from in ministry. He was an amazing soul winner. He would not be in conversation with you for over 15 minutes that he wasn't talking to you about Jesus. I can't tell you how many people he led to Christ. Um, he was the only pastor that Calloway ever had that came to my home specifically to see my lost dad. And he came there intentionally. Three or four times. Trying to win my father to the Lord. He eventually led my dad to Christ, and I thank God for him. He was a man that did a lot to to encourage me in ministry, even before um, I went off to Bible college. He he allowed me to stand and preach from his pulpit. That, that's not something that you get to do very often. Um, he, he allowed me to baptize people. He allowed me to uh, officiate the Lord's Supper. He was preparing me for ministry to follow in his steps. He was such an encouragement to me, and I, and I thank God for him. I, I miss him. He, he died from cancer. He had three bouts of cancer. He led my dad to the Lord while he was... A week after he had his first kidney removed from cancer, my dad went to to see him, and he led dad to Jesus in the hospital room. Years later, um, after I'd finished school, in fact, it was when Harvest just first got started, we were on vacation down in Panama City, and I was down at the men's club trying to get a fish finder to work on my kayak. It's a whole other story. And, and this man's son saw me and he drove over to the landing and he got out and came over and th- this guy was a friend of mine we we started talking and the next thing i knew he was he was putting his mouth on the new pastor that they had he was speaking negatively about the man and he was telling me about what he wasn't doing and what he should be doing and you know he was just really throwing him under the bus and then he said to me He said, would you consider coming back and being our pastor? I mean, I was here, and and he he asked me that question. And and without hesitation, I said to James, sir, you you don't want me to come be your pastor. I I know too much about the church to do that. Uh, the, The only way that I would ever even consider being your pastor is if all your leadership resigned. And we started over brand new with a new beginning. Need I say, I never got a call. <laughs> I, I've been known for doing those kind of things, but no, it was just not where I needed to be. Um, <clears throat> I confessed when I said that to him that I was a little bit in the flesh and I was a little bit angry. Calloway had had a, a really bad habit of firing godly men. I know of three that they fired that they should never have fired. Um... I do admit that I wondered years ago, after you know, a little bit after he asked me that question, if if there was a possibility that I could go there and make a difference. Somebody needed to, and I wondered if I could. Um, but but that's when this verse of scripture came to my mind. It was when I first considered the key verse for what we're going to look at today. Um, Jesus spoke these actual words. He said in Luke chapter four, verse twenty-four. But the truth is, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Well, what in the world does that mean? I promise before I'm done, you're going to know, okay? Hang with me. You guys ask great questions, and I'll do my best to answer this one. Look with me at Luke 4, verse 14. Luke writes, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, Soon he became well known throughout the surrounding country. Uh, Dr. Luke Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that reports on Jesus going back to his hometown. He tells us that after he had spent time at the Jordan River for his baptism and then in the Judean wilderness for his temptation that Jesus returned to the area of Galilee. Um, I want you to notice that when Jesus made that journey back he was filled with the holy spirit's power now temptation and we're all tempted right temptation will typically do one of two things to you it can strengthen you or it can weaken you uh j vernon mcgee said suffering and testing will either make you sweeter or it will sour you it will soften or hard you and i've said many times What doesn't make you better will make you bitter. Now, there's an old saying that that goes like this. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. You ever heard that before? I had not till this week studying for this message. The same sun that melts wax will harden clay. In other words, what you're made of determines what the sun does with you. (laughs) physically and spiritually wax and clay are are two different things and that is why the heat of the sun does different things with them think about it. pharaoh and jesus were two very different people right different just like wax and clay are different uh life's pressure made pharaoh's heart which was already hard even harder but the pressures of life made Jesus humble because humility was already a part of who Jesus was. It was a part of his character. In the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his right as God. He made himself nothing. When I thought of that word nothing, I thought about Mr. Paul, Paul Wookie. You know, Paul's got an amazing story. If you know anything about him, the things that he used to do flying for the military, there's a lot of it he still can't tell because it was top secret. But when he came into harvest, he didn't come in here looking for a title or a position. He came in here as a humble servant. And every week he would come in and sit with Joyce in the office and fold bulletins and stuff bulletins and to do the menial things that I mean, that's just who he was. He was a person of humility. He still is to this day. Jesus took the humble position of a slave, and he appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on the cross. Not just a death on the cross, but a criminal's death on the cross. I want you to be careful not to confuse a a humble spirit with physical and spiritual weakness. His battle with Satan did not leave him spiritually drained, but instead Jesus was stronger and and full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, the public ministry of Jesus began very strongly, powerfully, and his popularity grew uh, greatly among the people. Uh, It says that soon he became well known throughout the surrounding country and he taught regularly in the synagogue. Uh, and was praised by everyone. Again, Dr. Luke is the only writer to report that Jesus paid a visit to his hometown, the town of Nazareth, and and his reputation began to grow and and by now he was uh the news was spreading far and wide that that he 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 was a miracle worker. There was a miracle worker from Nazareth. And so you can only imagine how excited and anxious his family was, his friends and and neighbors were to to see him again and to hear him speak and and to see him perform a miracle. A miracle. A lot of people say they can do miracles, but Jesus did them. He did. Bethlehem was his birthplace, but Nazareth was his hometown. He was raised in Nazareth, and and the, the local synagogue there became his second home. I've heard Ronnie make the statement that he, he, was, he was always raised in the Baptist church. He was in the church before he was born. His mama sat on the pew and brought him to church every Sunday, whether he wanted to come or not. You know, he was there. Um, it was the practice of Jesus to attend public worship. It was something that was a part of his life. And it's certainly a practice that all of us who follow Jesus should imitate, right? We should come to worship. The writer of Hebrews said, think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of of love and good deeds. And and let us not neglect our meeting together. He's talking about being in church together. As some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now, that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. So think about this. The worship of God, the worship of God was a major part of Jesus' life. He loved his father so much that he wanted to come and worship him. Now, he could have made some typical excuses that we make when we stay home. Like, it's raining. (laughs) Or, you know, I've had a really hard week this week. Uh, Sunday's my only day to sleep in. I stayed up too late last night playing games. So I'll just stay home. He could have said, I'm I'm not going because organized religion is corrupt. It was then. It still is today. He could have said, and besides that, you know, who's going to teach me? I already know everything I need to know. (laughs) But instead, it was his regular practice to make his way on the Sabbath. We had this conversation earlier. On the Sabbath, he would go and he would worship in God's house, a house of prayer, and worship. Now, we're, we're told by Dr. Luke that Jesus went there to the synagogue so that he could read from the scriptures. This was a usual activity of his. Tony Evans said, so whereas Jesus's public ministry had just began, that, 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 that took place, that his ministry began when he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. But he says here, Whereas Jesus' public ministry had just begun, his spiritual practice of engaging God and God's Word and God's people had always been a regular part of his life. It wasn't new to him. Friends, that pattern started early with Jesus. It started when he was just a, a young boy. I, I thought of Luke chapter 2, verse 41, where Luke wrote about how every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. If you know anything about Jewish culture, you notice that you know, you know that they had three special feasts every year where people would make their way to Jerusalem. So they would go there to worship. They would also have local synagogues in their communities where they would worship the Lord every Sabbath. Verse 42 says, When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. And after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. You reckon, did he ask? No. <laughs> His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed that he was with friends among the other travelers. There's a large gathering of people making their way back to Nazareth. But when he didn't show up that evening, when you know, the dinner bell rang and he wasn't there, they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days later, my mom would have wore my rear end out. Three days later, they finally discovered him. He was in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, discussing deep questions with them. And all who heard him were amazed at His understanding and his answers. And and so his mother said to him, you know, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. What got into you? What did Jesus say? Why did you need to search? You should have known that I would be in my father's house. I'll bet you Mary pondered that. Because she knew Joseph wasn't his father. She knew his heavenly father was. In the 16th verse of chapter 4, it says, "When, When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read the scriptures. A a typical Jewish synagogue worship service included the following elements. It would begin with an invocation, somebody asking God's blessings on that service. And then someone would stand up and recite the traditional Hebrew confession of faith found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Following that, somebody would stand up and pray. And then somebody would read a preselected reading from the law and from the prophet. Uh, the prophets. Uh, that would be read in Hebrew, but it would be paraphrased in Aramaic. That way everybody would be able to understand it. The, then there would be a sermon given by somebody from the congregation or by a visiting rabbi, and when that sermon was over, somebody would conclude or close in prayer. Well, on this particular day, Jesus was asked to read the scripture and also give the sermon. What an honor! That's when one of the leaders handed him uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't know what size that scroll was, but I remember seeing some scrolls down next to the wailing wall that were almost five foot tall. It took several people to roll them out and hold them. This one seems to be smaller, probably just of the book of Isaiah. They rolled it out. Um, What's interesting is that Jesus choked. He chose what chapter and verse he was going to read, and he chose the 61st chapter, verses 1 and 2. I believe he did that strategically. He knew exactly. He knew the Scriptures very well, right? He's God. (laughs) But he also grew up with them, okay? Here's why this was strategic. Uh, This was a very special messianic passage of Scripture. That means it spoke about the Messiah. And Jewish rabbis had long interpreted and taught that this passage was all about God's Messiah. So so everyone in the room would have known that. And they would have believed that to be true. So you can only imagine how shocked the people were when they heard Jesus boldly proclaiming that this passage was written about Him. The fact that He had made the statement that he had come to usher in the acceptable year of the Lord. The New Living Translation says that he had come to usher in the time of the Lord's favor. Look at verse 17. It says, The scroll containing the messages of Isaiah the prophet were what was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll to the place where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that that captives will be released. And that the blind will see. And that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors. And that time of the Lord's favor has come. This passage is a reference. Gives a reference to the year of Jubilee that's mentioned In Leviticus chapter 24 now if you've studied that passage you'll know that every seventh year in Jewish life every seventh year was a sabbatical year a period of needed rest it was a sabbatical year for the nation when their land would be allowed to rest they wouldn't farm it and then every 50th year after seven sabbaticals every 50th year was set apart as the year of Jubilee, a very special year. The primary reason for this special year was that it was their way of balancing the economic system, the economic system. It was a time when slaves were set free and allowed to go back to their families. It was a time when property was, was allowed to go back to families that had sold it. It was a time when all debts were canceled. Everybody started over fresh. It it was also a time when land lay fallow as man and beast rested and rejoiced in the Lord. Wow. Every 50th year. So when Jesus accepted the role and then read from this particular set of verses, he was literally reading a job description that only he had the ability to fulfill. Think about that. He was applying all of this to his ministry, not, not in a political way or even an economic sense, but certainly in a physical and a spiritual way. Worsby says that Jesus had certainly brought good news of salvation to bankrupt sinners and, and healing to uh, brokenhearted and rejected people. He had delivered many from blindness and from their bondage to demons and disease. Indeed, it was a spiritual year of Jubilee. For the nation of Israel. When Jesus read this. Freedom. Rest. And peace. If you could use one word. To sum up Jesus' job. It would be the word "deliverer." Deliverer. He came to deliver people. He came to deliver you. I, I don't know what you're going through. But he does. He did. He still does. He came to deliver people. From their bondage but here was a problem when he spoke that that day to these people the problem was that no one who heard what he said or saw what he did believed him that's right you got to remember to them Jesus was just the hometown boy when they looked at Jesus they they only saw Uh, a young man that grew up but he was still Mary and Joseph's son Uh, they saw him as the hometown boy that grew up down the road they they saw him as as that little boy that, that one day played with their own children and on top of that they wanted him to perform for them the same kind of miracles that he had done in Capernaum but Jesus refused look at verse 20 it says he rolled up the scroll And he handed it back to the attendant. And then he sat down. He sat down. No sermon. He let the word of God speak for itself. Everyone in the synagogue stared at him intently. Silence. What's that old saying? Silence is golden. Ooh. You could have heard a pin drop. They heard every word that he said when he read that scripture verse. But now he's silent. But God was speaking. God was speaking. It said, all who were there spoke well of him. And they were amazed by the gracious words that fell from his lips. But they said, how can this be? Isn't he Joseph's son? And then Jesus said, probably you will quote me that proverb physician heal yourself meaning why don't you do miracles here in your hometown like you did in capernaum i want you to understand that the fact that they they first began by admiring him to begin with they were proud of their hometown boy because he was becoming more and more famous Uh, there was just something about him that they'd never seen in anybody else before i mean No one spoke the way that Jesus did, but but he was just a hometown boy. And what did Jesus say? No prophet is ever accepted in his own hometown. So that admiration that they fell for him soon turned into animosity, antagonism and animosity. But why? I don't don't want you to miss this because this is important. It was simply because they were Jewish people that he was speaking to. And you've got to remember that Jewish people were proud people. They considered themselves to be the only people that God blessed and called. They were his people. And what Jesus had done was he had begun to remind them of God's inclusive goodness to the Gentiles. God says, yeah, you're special, but guess what? There's another people he's calling into the family. I want you to look at how Jesus did that. Look at what he said. Luke verse chapter 4, verse 24. He said, but the truth is no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And oh, by the way, <laughs> look at verse 25. Certainly there were many widows in Israel who needed help in Elijah's time when there was no rain for three and a half years and hunger stalked the land. And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to the widow of Zarephath, a foreigner in the land of Sidon. Or think about the prophet Elijah. Not the same as Elijah, but Elijah who healed Naaman the Syrian rather than the many lepers in Israel who needed help. Friend, I want you to understand that the message of grace that Jesus shared was a slap in the face to the proud Jewish exclusive mindset of this congregation. They couldn't believe he said that. And they would not receive him because of what he had said. And they would not repent. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him, and they took him to the edge of the hill on which the city was built, and they were intending to push him over the cliff. He got ugly. They grabbed him and dragged him to the edge of that cliff, intending to kill him. But it says he slipped away through the crowd and left them. I would have loved to have been there to see seen that. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. You can't lay a hand on the Son of God. Yeah. Can you imagine his, the, the, this hometown boy saying to his own people that they had to be saved just like the Gentiles have to be saved. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine him saying to them, if you want to be saved, you've got to trust me as your Messiah. Ooh, the hometown boy, you got to trust me as your Messiah or you don't get into heaven. Dr. James Merritt said, unfortunately, while Jesus offers to anyone and everyone deliverance from sinful, selfish ways into a spiritually guided life, not all will be delivered. I'm here to tell you again, as I've told you before, that Jesus did what was needed to be done on the cross to save every last human being that's ever lived on the face of this planet. It was a sufficient sacrifice that God well accepted, but listen to me, not everybody's going to be saved. So that raises the question, what separates the people who will be saved and delivered from those who will not? What's the difference? Can I give you one word? It's the word believe. One word, believe. Pistuo in the Greek. Pistuo. It means to place confidence in. It means to trust. As it's used here in this sense, it means reliance upon not mere credence. And so I would say, that this is not just an intellectual head knowledge that says, hey, I believe that Jesus was a real person and that he did one day live a long time ago and yes, he died on the cross believing a bunch of facts in your head. Head knowledge. This is not head knowledge. No, what I'm talking to you about is heart knowledge. A heart knowledge that believes that Jesus is and as their Lord and Savior. It's a... It's a heart knowledge that takes him in as my personal deliverer. Folks, these were hard-hearted people that refused to believe and trust that Jesus was the Messiah. They rejected truth. They rejected Jesus. St. Augustine said, they loved truth when it enlightened them, but they hated truth when it accused them. They were convicted in their heart by God Jesus is truth, but they would not receive him. I want you to understand that Jesus has the power to deliver anybody. He can deliver you. He delivered Mr. Lee, the man I talked to you about, from alcoholism. When he invited Jesus Christ into his heart, he never drank again. He delivered my grandmother from alcoholism. When she accepted Christ, she never drank again. There were things in my life that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That I have not done to this day. Deliverance. I want you to understand that Jesus can deliver you. But just like the people of Nazareth. If you persist in unbelief you will not be delivered. You must believe him not with your head. But with your heart. Your heart. Old black preacher said people are going to miss heaven by 15 inches from the head to the heart. You can have a head full of knowledge about Jesus and and, and wind up in hell. It's got to change who you are. It's got to change who you are. Jesus said no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Here's here's been my prayer for y'all as I prepared this message. My prayer has been... This week, I've been praying that you would open up your heart and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and that you will invite him in so he can be at home in your heart. You know, when you think about it, some of us have that information at home in our head, but we've never made him at home in our heart. Will you do that today? Will you? We invite him in, let him be at home. We accept and trust him. Uh, Make make him more than just a hometown boy. Let him be your savior. Some of you need to be saved today. Some of you go, why do you preach a salvation message every Sunday? That's just who I am, okay? I'm trying to prepare you who are saved to go win others to Christ. But if you're lost under my watch, I want you to know how to meet Jesus. If you'll come this morning, I'll pray with you. I'll help you to make him the Lord of your life. But if you leave the way you came, you're going to be just like these Jews in the synagogue that day that rejected Jesus. Don't do that.